morning, the title of my sermon is What Does It Mean to Believe in Jesus? There's a great deal of confusion in our world. In 1989, George Gallup reported that 94% of American adults polled claimed to believe in God. If that's true, if 94% of Americans believe in God, that means the remaining 6% of American adults have been very busy committing an awful lot of crime, selling an awful lot of drugs, etc., etc., or something is radically wrong with their concept of what it means to believe in God. Not all that long ago, I was asked by the authorities at the Department of Corrections to handpick 38 men and spend three months with them every day inside Cook County Jail for a special program. And they wanted to see if this Christian stuff really works. So they gave me the freedom to interview as many people as I wanted to. And I interviewed probably close to 100 people. And I handpicked 38 individuals for a special program. We called it the Life Learning Dorm. And I was literally inside the jail, inside their cell block with them every morning at 9 o'clock. And I stayed with them for most of the day. We had other teachers come in for the rest of the day. And I spent three and a half months with them. In my initial interview, I asked each man if he believed in God, and each man said yes. I asked each man if he believed in Jesus, and each one said yes. I asked each man if he was a Christian, and each one said yes. I said, how do you know you're a Christian? And virtually every single one of them responded with the exact same phrase. Because I believe in Jesus. Well, almost everybody believes in Jesus. The Hindus believe in Jesus, along with 329,999,999 other gods. The Muslims believe in Jesus. The New Agers believes in Jesus. One of the most common mistakes that I see with evangelists and soul winners, I've seen this many times. All you have to do is believe in Jesus, pray this prayer, and you're in. And they lead them in a prayer by rote, and I have seen this countless times. Praise the Lord, you're now a Christian. Well, paradoxically, the Bible says all you can do to get into heaven is to believe in Jesus. The question this morning is, what does it mean to believe? And what am I supposed to believe? The Gospel of John is where we find the word believe more than any other single book of the Bible. It is written in the Gospel of John 96 times. Throughout the New Testament, the word believe is one of the most important words in all of Holy Writ because our salvation, our eternal destiny is hanging in the balance. Here are a few examples. 
John 3.16, probably the most well-known verse in all of the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever believe or believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That's quite a promise. Whoever believes in Jesus shall not go to hell. That's what it means. Another very well-known verse is Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Another one is Acts 16.30. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you shall be saved, you and your household. Another one is John 6.35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. There are 90 more of them in the Gospel of John. God's promises in time and eternity are contingent upon one thing, are simply believing in Jesus. The question again is, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? It's Strong's number 4100 in the Greek lexicon in the Strong's Dictionary. It is the word pistio. In the Greek, it is used as a verb. It literally means to believe in, to trust in, and to rely upon Jesus. It comes from the same root word as the word faith. Double-checking for accuracy. I went to the Zondervan Biblical Encyclopedia. I looked up the word believe and it said, see faith. Hebrews 11.6 Without faith it is impossible to please him. For all who come to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So the word belief and the word faith are synonymous. In fact, you can literally change the two words around without altering the, the, the meaning of the text at all. We could literally make it say, and without believing, it is impossible to please him for all who come to God must have faith that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those that seek him. Another verse is found in Matthew chapter 9. After he had come into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes and said, Be it done according to your faith. So the question becomes, since my eternal destiny is hanging in the balance, the obvious question becomes, what does it mean to have faith? Back to the biblical, the Zondervan Biblical Encyclopedia, it shows the word under faith. It says, in the New Testament theology, it denotes truth, reality, and genuineness. There is an association with the concept of faithfulness. Now please give me your attention because this is the point where we jump into hyperspace. 
Ravi Zacharias said this, in the Hebrew language there is no word for faith apart from the idea of faithfulness. And in our being faithful to him, we find the purpose for which we were designed in a greater way. And that is not bondage, that's liberating. Our faithfulness to him is the key to unlocking the treasure of all that he has given to us. Another point I want to make here is, this is what faith looks like. If you truly believe in Jesus, Please remember, Jesus said, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So far from giving intellectual assent to his deity, this belief meant something far more than that. If we really believe in Jesus, we will have faith in Jesus. We will trust in him, we will believe in him, and we will rely upon him. And if you have that kind of what we call saving faith, it will result in a life of faithfulness to him. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 says, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ, as stewards of the mysteries of God. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. He has entrusted us, the body of Christ, with the secrets and the mysteries of the universe. He expects a return on his investment. He says those who have been entrusted with the secrets and the mysteries of God must prove faithful. Who are the epistles written to, Sarah Hong? In Ephesians 1.1. 1, 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against these things there is no law. Matthew chapter 25, verse 21. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. To believe in Jesus means to have faith in Jesus. If you really have faith in Jesus, it will result, the fruit of that genuine faith will result in a life of faithfulness. But since my eternal destiny was hanging in the balance, I still wanted to know, okay, so what does it mean to be faithful? What does faithfulness look like? Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him, the source of eternal salvation. He became to all those who obey him. Boy, that's a hard word. I used to be in sales and there are hard words and there are soft words. When you're in sales, you never say, please sign this contract. You always say, would you approve this agreement? <laughs> this word obey, oh man. 
Now you're telling me what to do? You mean if I become a Christian, you're going to be telling me what to do? Well, yeah. Yeah, obedience is part of it. Acts 5.29 Peter and the apostles answered and said, We must obey God rather than men. The next time you're tempted to retreat, when you have an opportunity to speak for the Lord Jesus Christ, please remember that they were threatened, the context of this verse is they were threatened by the Pharisees not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore. No more this gospel preaching. And their answer was face to face, belly to belly. We must obey God rather than men thank you anyway. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 6 and 8. The Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 4.17 It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ? After our country was attacked, a well-known Christian leader blamed it on the homosexuals and the abortionists. And that's funny because my Bible says that judgment will begin with the household of God. And as I read my Bible and as I read the Old Testament, God brought judgment against his own people and allowed their enemies to destroy them time and time and time again because of their, their lack of faith and their disobedience. I realize that's about as politically incorrect as you can possibly get. But the fact is that we, the church of Jesus Christ, are going to stand before God before the world does and we are going to give, we are going to give an account for, with, for what we did with what we had. The answer is not in legislation. It's not in war. We are the only ones who have the answer and the solution to this world's problems. In Matthew chapter 721 is another very politically incorrect verse. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You who did not obey is what it means. There is no doubt that he is talking to people here who believed while they were on this earth that they had actually done wonderful things in the name of Jesus. While I was in Africa... I had time to, in the evenings, from time to time, I turned on a TBN, which I believe stands for Total Blasphemy Network. 
I turned it on and I was shocked. I had to get out a pencil and a piece of paper to write this stuff down because I could not believe what these people were saying in the name of Jesus. I saw one man, his name was uh, Rod Lettuce or Parsley or something like that. And... uh, He said in a growling voice, sounded just like a demon to me. He was growling. I guess that's the anointing when it's really on him. He growls. And he said he was instructing thousands of people in his congregation and God only knows how many hundreds of thousands of more via satellite around the world. When you pray, don't pray if it's your will. You demand what God will give you. I turned off the TV at that point and wrote it down because I couldn't believe it. And about 10 minutes later, I couldn't resist and I turned it back on. And his closing prayer was, when you have a problem, go to God. And uh, he yelled at God at that point and he said, uh, here's our mess, now what are you going to do about it? And that's how he closed his, his teaching. Uh, I also saw Frederick Casey, if the price is right, I'll bless you literally say to a congregation of a very large group of people talking about money as he always does and how to get rich he was saying if you have friends that are negative if you have friends that are negative get rid of those friends what's love got to do with it anyway what's love got to do with it apparently he gets his theology from uh, what's your name who sang that song Tina Turner. He gets his theology from Tina Turner because she's the one who sang What's Love Got to Do With It Anyway. The last time I looked at my Bible, it said love had everything to do with it. And if you didn't have that, you didn't have anything. I didn't bring their names up to make fun of them. These guys need to get saved. And I fear if they don't, it will be men like this who will stand before the Lord and say, boy, you know, we we did all this stuff in your name. It wasn't done in his name. That was a different Jesus. 1 John chapter 3, verse 22. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. That's another wonderful way of saying he blesses us because we have a passion for obedience, for loving obedience. But again, it's not the obedience of a slave. It's the obedience of a loving child. In John 3.36, it says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. There it is right there. To believe in Jesus means to have faith in Jesus. If you have faith in Jesus, it will result in a life of faithfulness to Jesus, which means if you believe in the Son, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey does not have life. Believe and obey are perfectly synonymous. There's no way around it. If you really believe in Jesus, you'll have faith. And if you have genuine saving faith, it will result in a life of faithfulness, which is a nice way of saying obedience. So what does obedience look like? Abraham was willing to slay his son 
in uncompromising obedience to the living God. Joseph refused to be seduced by Potiphar's wife, asking, how could I do this evil and sin against God? John the Baptist would not have been in prison or beheaded had he not been faithful to the truth of God about adultery. John the Baptist was the second most politically incorrect person who has ever lived, and he literally faced the king with his finger in his face and accused him of sin based on love for the king. Peter was crucified upside down, unwilling to deny that he was an eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These are the models we have in Scripture. Philippians 2.8 tells us that Jesus literally laid aside his crown for our souls. He humbled himself and became a man and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. So... What am I supposed to believe? John 8, 24 says, Jesus speaking, I said therefore to you, you shall die in your sins unless you believe that I am... <laughs> I'm sorry, it stops right there. Unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sins. Your Bible has a little he there in italics, but that's not what it says in the Greek. It says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sin. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the vine. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born in John 8.58, I am and they picked up stones to stone him for saying, I am, because they knew exactly what he meant. They didn't have a New Testament when this happened. All they had was the Older Testament, and they knew exactly what he meant when he said, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And they picked up stones to stone him because he, being a man, claimed in no uncertain terms to be the great I am of Exodus chapter 3 verse 14 when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush and gave him his commission to set the Israelites free and Moses said I don't think they're going to believe me by what authority am I coming in what is your name and God the father said I am that I am tell them I am hath sent you I am comes from the same root as YHWH, God's most holy and proper name. In Psalm 23, when it says, The Lord is my shepherd, it actually says, Yahweh Eve Ra'ach, Yahweh. I don't know the true pronunciation, nobody does. But if you look at it in the original Hebrew, what you will see there in English is YHWH, pronounced in Hebrew, Yudhe Vave. It comes, 
It was the most holy and proper name of God, so holy and so revered, the Israelites dare not speak the name for fear of breaking the third commandment, which said, he who takes my name in vain shall not go unpunished. So they substituted other names, more generic names, which were pictures of his attributes, so they would not have to say the most holy name of God. It comes from the same root as I am, which is pronounced ayach in Hebrew. It means the eternal self-existent one. The God who is, the God who was, and the God who always will be. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That name was so holy they dared not speak it. It consisted of four consonants and no vowels. So consequently they lost the true pronunciation of his name. When one of Jehovah's false witnesses comes to your door next time and tells you that the true name of God is Yahweh or Jehovah, pardon me, or somebody else says the true name of God is Yahweh, or the true name of God is this, or the true name of God is that. Remember, nobody knows how to pronounce the true name of God. The closest you will ever come to the true pronunciation of the most holy name of the eternal self-existent one whose existence is not derived from anything outside of himself, that's why the bush wasn't consumed. The closest you can ever come to pronouncing the most holy name of God is Ayach. And Jesus said, unless you believe that Ayach, you will die in your sin. When Psalm 23 said, the Lord is my shepherd, Jesus said, I am the good Shepherd. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? I will never forget watching a documentary of a man down south, an older man who was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. He was charged with murder because a house was burned down and one or two people in the house died in the fire. And it was an African-American family. And uh, this man was a Ku Klux Klan member. And he was tried for the murder. And they didn't have enough evidence to convict him. So he was released. Everybody in town knew he was the man. But nobody would testify against him. I'm not an attorney. I don't pretend to understand all this. But I used to think that if you were tried for a crime once, you could not be tried again, double jeopardy or something like that. Well, somehow they got around that and they got some more evidence and they tried this man again. Again, he beat it. He was found not guilty of the crime, even though he was as guilty as he could be. He laughed about it, he bragged about it. Many, many years later, 10, 20 years later, Somebody stepped up to the plate and said, my conscience is bothering me so badly, I've got to get it off my chest. I know who burned down that house and who murdered those people. It was this man. And he said he was willing to testify in a court of law against him. And somehow, they were able to try him a third time for the same crime. This time, 
They got, the, they got the guilty verdict that they were looking for, and he was sent to prison. Rightly so. Here's what's interesting about it. When it showed the man's name, and what is it? he was an older man. He was at the end of his life. And it showed that he was a business owner, and he did that, and he did this, and he did that. And he was a Sunday school teacher. Wow. He believed in Jesus. He taught Sunday school. He went to church on Sunday. Well, my Bible says in 1 John 4.20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Did y'all hear that? You can say you love God till you turn blue in the face. And if it is not manifested in a life of obedience, in a life of love, in a life of repentance, in a life of love for your brothers, even for your enemies, you don't know what it means to believe in Jesus. I have a closing illustration and a closing quote, and then we're done. There's an illustration that is a well-known illustration, and I'm sure most of you have heard it before, but I want to show you something about it that you may not have considered before. When I took a class at Moody, the teacher told me that this was an absolute true story, and he told me the man's name and everything else. It's the old illustration about the tightrope walker who used to walk across Niagara Falls. Apparently, it's a true story. And uh, this man would tie a rope across Niagara Falls and gather a large crowd. It was publicized well in advance, and they would gather. And this man would literally walk across a rope over Niagara Falls. And apparently, everybody got quite a kick out of it, and I'm sure I, w I would too. And he walked across the rope and safely walked back and said, how many believe I can dance across the rope? And they all said, yeah, we know you can do it. Go! So he gets on the rope and he does a little thing. You know, he's acting a little goofy on the rope. And he makes it to the other side safely and he says, how many think I can walk a wheelbarrow across the rope? And they all said, yeah, go! We know you can do it! So he walks a wheelbarrow across the rope safely and walks it back. And he says, how many think that I can walk a man in that wheelbarrow across that rope? And they all said, yes, yes, go! And he said, Who's, who wants to get in first? <laughs> and they all said, well, I don't believe it that much. Well, it's a perfect illustration for the sermon. Jesus isn't asking us to get in a wheelbarrow so some mortal can walk across the rope and see if we can survive to get a kick out of a crowd. But he is asking us to lay our life on the line for his glory. I want to give you my whole sermon once more, but in one sentence. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? It means to believe Jesus. The next time you're tempted to sin, believe what Jesus said about it. 
The next time you're tempted to remain silent when you should speak, believe what Jesus said. The, the next time you're tempted to take your eyes off the road and look at something else, believe what Jesus said. The next time you become discontented with your life and you experience covetousness for some worldly thing or some material thing, believe what Jesus said. I want to leave you with this quote from my friend Dietrich Bonhoeffer. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he said this. Do we realize that cheap grace has turned back on us like a boomerang? The price we're having to pay today in the shape of the collapse of the organized church is only the inevitable consequence of our policy of making grace available at all at too low a cost. We gave away the word and the sacraments wholesale. We baptized, confirmed, and absolved a whole nation, unasked and without condition. Our humanitarian sediment made us give that which was holy to the scornful and unbelieving. We poured forth unending streams of grace, but the call to follow Jesus in the narrow way was hardly ever heard. What happened to all those warnings of Luther's against preaching the gospel in a manner as to make men rest secure in their ungodly living? The word of cheap grace has been the ruin of more Christians than any commandment of works. I think he's right. Let's pray.